All right, for the first time in what's going to be uh, a lot of Sundays, I'm going to say, if you have a Bible, open up to Romans. We are beginning a study that is going to last, by my best estimation, somewhere between 18 and 24 months. We're, we're not sure exactly how long it's going to take us, but we are embarking on, on a very uh, long and hopefully uh, fulfilling journey through the book of Romans. I was sitting in, uh, in a hotel in Colorado Springs about two, uh, probably about three weeks ago. On a Sunday morning, I was on my way to a camp where, where uh, I was speaking, and I was reading the sports page, and I was by myself. Cindy and other kids were with me. And so I read it from cover to cover. You know, you read about, you know, the local uh, fourth grade high jump competition, you know, and somebody cleared 3-6, and it was, you know. So you're reading all the little stuff as well. But I came across this article. Uh, and I'm going to read it to you. It's not very long. It's about, about that much space. Uh, and this is, the title is Rowers, R-O-W-E-R-S, Rowers, okay? Break Atlantic record from New York to UK. A four-man rowing team has broken a 114-year-old record for crossing the Atlantic from New York to Britain by 11 days. Skippered by Scotland's Levin Brown, the team left on June the 17th and rode 3,262 miles to the Isle of Scilly off England's southwest tip in 43 days, 21 hours, 26 minutes, and 48 seconds. The, pre- the previous record was uh, recorded, excuse me, the previous record of 55 days, 13 hours was set in 1896 by two Norwegians. The crew that arrived Saturday also set the record for the most ocean miles rode in a 24-hour period, 118 miles on July the 14th. Now, I don't know what comes across your mind, but I ha- I'm a pretty simple guy. I have one word. Why? <laughs> Who wakes up one morning and says to his three buddies, hey, how about we row from New York to, uh, to, to uh, England? That makes no sense at all. Get on a plane. If you want to see the ocean, get on a, get on a cruise ship. Who rows across the ocean? It makes no sense whatsoever. The other thing, which has nothing to do with my sermon, which you probably think all this has nothing to do with my sermon. The other thing is this. How does a two-man team hold the record, but then they give the record to a four-man team? I'm convinced we could have won the World Cup if we could have had 22 guys on the field every time we played another soccer team. This this is a terrible injustice. I've got to find out about this. But who wakes up and says, I'm going to go on a 3,262 rowboat ride with my buddies? Well, then I started thinking about it and actually processing a little bit. And I think it's the kind of person that kind of loves the adventure. I think it's the kind of person that says, you know what? This would really be a profound experience. We're going to learn some things and see some things, if we survive, (laughs) that we'll be able to tell our children and their children, their children, as long as we live. And our great-grandchildren will tell the story of their great-grandpa who rode across across the Atlantic Ocean. Think about what they saw. Think about a storm coming up on the ocean when you're in a rowboat. Think about the giant waves. Anybody see the movie, The Perfect Storm? I didn't see a whole lot at the end of that movie. I listened to it with my eyes closed. Think about that kind of experience out on the ocean. And to accomplish that feat is truly an amazing thing. We are, as a spiritual family, going to embark upon what may feel like at times a 3,262 rowboat ride through the book of Romans. Romans is... Paul's pinnacle work. If you're just looking at it from human standard, take, take the divine out of it for just a minute. This is Paul's best work. It's his amazing compilation of, of theology and what he has come to know and understand about God. And friends, it is deep. 
It is challenging. It is not simple. It is not for the faint of heart. Romans is a deeply insightful theological work. As we go through this study, your understanding of God, your understanding of the gospel, your understanding of how God works in his world through his righteousness, that's why we've got the righteousness of God as kind of the subtitle here, is going to be challenged. You're going to hopefully, Lord willing, learn some things that you haven't seen before. And some of those things that you're going to experience may bother you a little bit. Romans is not a simple work. James Montgomery Boyce, one of the best preachers ever to set foot in the United States of America, was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia uh, for decades. He said, I won't preach Romans until I've read it a thousand times. He didn't start Romans until he was in his mid-50s, and he finished Romans when he turned 60. This isn't a deep theological work, but there's another, uh, there's another thing about Romans that we need to understand, and that's it's an enormously powerful epistle. It's not just going to challenge us intellectually, but it's going to expose us to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is transformational in nature. Uh, you've probably heard lots of stories about people who have studied Romans. I'll just mention two this morning. Augustine in the fourth century. Augustine was a very smart guy. He was intellectually superior to almost everybody he encountered. He was also self-absorbed. He was an incredibly immoral person. He had, had lots and lots of different lovers throughout the course of his early life. And he, had, he wanted nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And then he began to study Romans. And he became one of the greatest minds the church has ever produced. Martin Luther was a monk in Germany. And Martin Luther was so oppressed by the weight of his sin, by the guilt he felt that day after day he would go into the confessional and to whoever his fellow priest was that was sitting on the other side of the confessional and he could pour out sin after sin after sin and then Luther would go on to go about his day or go back to his room and as he was walking away he would start to think about something he didn't confess and his fear that he would die apart from God and spend eternity in hell drove him back to the confessional to the point where his fellow monks didn't want to have anything to do with him. He became suicidal with the oppression of his sin. And as a relief to that, the Monsignor in charge of his order sent him to Wittenberg to teach the book of Romans. And it was in the book of Romans that Luther discovered that it wasn't his work. It wasn't his effort to please an angry God, but rather he saw the grace of God expressed through Jesus Christ on the cross. And he became the great champion of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he was the spark of the Reformation, and the world has never been the same. And we stand in his shadow this morning as we open this book of Romans. People have asked me, Tom, are you excited to get into Romans? And I've said, I'm actually kind of scared. I am excited. But this is deep theological waters, friends, and I don't want to scare you off. I don't want to, to say to us, you know, this is more than we can chew. I don't think it is. I want to jump into this with joy, but also with a healthy respect and with an anticipation of how God is going to grow our faith through this study. So with that said, the introduction to Romans, Romans chapter 1, just seven verses, 1 through 7, hear the word of God. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace, 
and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, we thank you for the inspiration that you gave Paul as a, as a, a veteran of, of many years of ministry at this point when he writes this letter to give us such deep truth about yourself, to challenge our assumptions, opinions, and to give us a clarity and an insight into your divine direction in our lives. Father, not so we'll be smarter, not so that we will know more than somebody else, but rather so that your word and your spirit will transform our lives. So Lord, we pray that this would not be an intellectual exercise in and of itself, but we pray that these words, the power of the gospel would come alive in our hearts and our minds. Whether we're here this morning with little interest or whether we're here this morning enthusiastic, whether we're here this morning claiming that Christ is our Lord and our Savior, whether we're here skeptical, wondering if there even is a God, Father, I pray that you would speak your truth into our lives. Lord Jesus, you know my sin. You know how far short I fall of loving you and honoring you the way I should. I pray that you would forgive me and that you would not allow me to stand in the way of what you want us to know this morning, but that you would come, that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, All the commentators who write on Romans 1, 1 through 7, uh, and actually verses 15, which we'll cover seven more verses, eight more verses next Sunday, all of them agree that this introduction tells us a lot about the Apostle Paul. And I don't disagree with that. And we're going to look at some of those things that we can learn about Paul this morning. But I think to suggest that that the uh, introduction to Romans simply introduces us to the Apostle Paul falls well short of its intended purpose. Saying that this introduction about Paul would be the same as me saying to you, uh, the Pacific Ocean is a body of water. Uh, It'd be the same as me saying the Grand Canyon is a hole in the ground. It'd be something like me saying the Beatles were a band. Or it could be something akin to me saying John Wooden was a basketball coach. Now, all of those things are true, but all of those things grossly understate the obvious. The Pacific Ocean is much more than a body of water. John Wooden was probably the greatest basketball mind that ever walked across the planet. And so to, to keep it that small and that confined just doesn't do the topic justice. And the same is true with this introduction. Because what Paul is going to show us in Romans is not Paul, but he wants to point to the transformational power of God's righteousness applied to a person's life. Let me say that again. The introduction to Romans begins to unpack for us the transformational power of God's righteousness on a person's life. So this introduction is more about God and what he's doing than Paul. And we see that in his life. You remember Paul, before he became Paul, was Saul, the the God-hater, the church-hater, the one who wanted to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Saul was to the first century church what uh, President Ahmadinejad of Iran is to the nation of Israel today. If he had his way, he would kill every Jew on the planet. He said so publicly on dozens of dozens of occasions. I'm not trying to say something negative about the man. This is what he said. He hates the nation of Israel. He would like to destroy it. He'd like to obliterate it. And that's the attitude that young Saul took 
to this infant church of Jesus Christ. He spent his time trying to put Christians in jail, trying to take away their property. He uh, stood by and held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen to death. And the scriptures say that Saul was there giving approval to what they were doing. Saul hated Jesus. Saul hated the church. And then he went on a road trip to Damascus and everything changed. Saul meets the risen Christ. Some 20 years or so prior to writing this book and God's power changed everything. And what we see on display here in Romans is how God changes a person's life. And that's important because this introduction and the whole book of Romans, therefore, gives hope for you and me. Because I need my life to be changed. I haven't quite reached perfection yet. I don't know about the rest of you. I'm still struggling. And to know that God's grace can impact my life in a practical way is one of the most important things that I can learn. It assures me, it assures you of the assurance of God's power working in our lives, and it challenges us to reflect on his truth. So if you've never met Paul before, I'm very happy to introduce you to him. He's a great guy. But I'm really excited to begin to be able to talk about the God whom Paul served and the transformational power that he has in our lives. So I want to give you four observations in this text about just that. The first one is what I'm calling a startling self-description. Look at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's how Paul identifies himself. So if somebody comes up to you who's never met you before and says, tell me about yourself, what would you tell them? Now, you know, in, in St. Louis, where do we start? Where'd you go to high school? Okay, that, that, that's where we start. I think I told you this. I found out that my, that my mom's dad was actually born in Webster Groves. That's like the worst news I could have ever heard in my entire life, that I actually have bloodline through Webster. Um, some of my less polite friends will take advantage of that. But, um, you know, that's kind of, that, that tells you a little bit about somebody. I, I give you a great illustration of this. Tony Campolo, who is a, a Christian sociologist, he's a professor at Eastern College, uh, he is a brilliant guy. But his wife is even more brilliant than he is. And he has several degrees, and I think she has twice as many degrees as she has. But when she was younger and they had two young kids, she decided she was going to stay at home and raise the kids, uh, and they were going to live on Tony's salary, and that, that was the choice they made. But in his circles, he ran with a lot of folks who were very intellectual, very accomplished, very well-to-do. And he tells a story of one night they were at a cocktail party and they're kind of walking around. I think it was maybe the president's uh, gotten together a whole bunch of different folks. And uh, they're chatting and he noticed that his wife's talking to a group of women. And within that group of women, there, there's, uh, there's a, a neurological surgeon. Uh, there's a, a trial attorney, he's a very famous trial attorney that, that uh, he knew her by reputation. There was even a, a woman who was an ambassador to a foreign country. And as he drew closer, he was walking with a buddy of his, as he drew closer to the conversation, he heard one of the women turn to his wife and kind of in a snobbish, look down your nose, I don't know who you are, you're probably not as good as me, tone, asked her this question, and what is it you do, my dear? And here is the response, and I've written it so I will get it right. Here's how Mrs. Campolo, uh, stay-at-home mom, responded. I am a residential life engineer, tasked with the responsibility of engaging on a daily basis with the intellectual, social, and spiritual development of two young and impressionable homo sapiens who left to their own devices would flounder and perish. But if nurture and given proper direction will mature into self-assured and capable societal change agents for the betterment of mankind. <laughs> and then she looked back at the woman and she said, and what is it you do, my dear? 
that tells you something about her. It gives you insight into her self-perception. Paul, in huge letters for all of mankind to see, says, Paul, a servant. The Greek word he uses there is doulos, which means literally an indentured servant or a slave. He doesn't even count himself as like the head butler over all the household staff. He puts himself on the lowest rung of the ladder. He doesn't start with, you know, I have a surpassing intellect. He could have said that. He could have started with, I'm the greatest church planter maybe the world will ever know. And that would have been a fair statement. He could have said, you know what, I'm a citizen of Rome and I have that prestige, but he didn't stay there. He starts with, I am a servant. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. You see Paul's humble heart, radically different than he was when he was a young man, but he also calls himself an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm a messenger. I'm a herald. I'm an ambassador. I don't represent myself. This is not about me. This is about someone and something much, much greater than me. Something's happened. This man who 20 years earlier was self-righteous, self-promoting, arrogant, antagonist of the church, but no more. And the question must be asked, how did he get to this self-description? What happened in his life? Did he just decide one day that he was going to stop being proud? Just say, you know what, I'm kind of rubbing people the wrong way. I'm going to try to work on some self-improvement to be a better guy. It didn't happen that way, friends. It doesn't happen that way in my life, and it doesn't happen that way in your life. This self-description is given to him through a humble heart that God has been working on in his life. My second observation is simply the journey from lunatic to Lord. Look at verses 2 through 4. Paul says, I'm an ambassador for this gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. On the Damascus Road, Paul was con- Saul was confronted with the risen Christ. And that was not the substance of his journey. That was not the entire journey. It was only the first step. But it was at that moment when Saul considered Jesus a nutcase. When Saul said, we've got to stamp this out now. This, this could have terrible ramifications on us. This crazy man, Jesus, we've got to get rid of his disciples. At that moment, Jesus spoke into his life. And Jesus was no longer a threat to Saul but he became, as he says in this bottom line, Christ our Lord. Jesus became in that instant the Lord of Saul's life, and his whole world was shaped differently from that moment forward. As he points out in verses 2 through 4, he began to understand the context of the Old Testament promises, beginning in Genesis. We just finished that study in Genesis, and you remember the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Saul was able to connect the dots and to see how that was pointing to Jesus. He says he was the son of David according to the flesh. He probably remembers 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, which pointed to the one who would follow David and sit on his throne forever and be the redeemer of Israel and all of mankind. Paul points out in these verses that Jesus is the son of God, that he is divine that he is God in the flesh. And perhaps Paul is recalling to mind Psalm 2 or Psalm 45 or Psalm 110 where where the, the Messiah who's to come is seen on equal footing as God himself. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's God talking to God the Son. 
and Paul began to see all that come together. In other words, and I'm going to use a technical term here, Paul's Christology change. Christology just means, what do you think of Jesus? Christology, the study of Jesus. What's your opinion of Jesus? And it changed radically. Jesus was no longer a lunatic to be feared, but he was now a Lord to whom Paul would gladly and joyfully submit. And the radical transformation began. And now Paul, Saul becoming Paul, has a new outlook on himself. And humility begins to take root and a heart and a care for others begins to be born in his life. I mentioned Augustine earlier. When Augustine uh, came to faith, he renounced his immoral lifestyle. And there was a day when he was walking down the street and coming the other way was one of his ex-lovers. And she called out and waved to him and said, Augustine, it is I. And he waved back and he said, but it is not I. There's a transformation that takes place when you begin to understand that Jesus is Lord. And some 20 years later, Paul's not introducing us to Paul. He's introducing us to his Lord who has changed his life forever. And that's my third observation, that there is a cause and effect of this relationship with God. Look at verses 5 and 6. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You see, what you believe about Jesus impacts the rest of your life. If you and I can sit down and we could talk for 30 or 40 minutes or an hour and you tell me your opinion of Jesus, I will tell you how you live your life. Not because I'm some great mystic, not because I have some great wisdom, but because I I know from my own experience and the experience of those around me that my Christology has a direct impact, my opinion of Jesus has a direct impact on how I live. And if Jesus is my Lord and I begin to experience this grace that Paul is speaking about, it will begin to change my priorities and the way I I look at my life and how I spend my time. Notice Paul goes from grace to apostleship. He says there's a connection there. I've received God's mercy, therefore I'm called to serve him and to care for others. And it changes everything in the way Paul looked at his priorities and his loyalties and his perspective on his life. Belonging to Jesus, does it lead me to serving him? Does it lead me to caring for others, identifying with the compassionate heart of God? I'll give you an example of this. It just happened to me the other day. You guys know that our younger two are out of the house now, so we're now empty nesters. And I heard it was supposed to be really, really lonely the first couple of weeks, and technically that hasn't really been my experience, but um, kind of nice. Um, anyway, the only downside is now I've got to take the trash out again. Um, but we, Katie went off to Hawaii. Jordan's not at University of Alabama. Uh, and so we, uh, we get back on Sunday night last week. And so Monday's our first official day as empty nesters, right? So I'm thinking, you know, kind of come home and, you know, get a shower and hang out and maybe go get some dinner and relax and, you know, just kind of maybe you'll watch the ball game or whatever and just, you know, have, have a nice evening. And Cindy calls me and says, hey, can you be home by 4.30? And I'm thinking, oh, she's got a special evening plan. This is so nice. I'm like, sure, I can be home by 4.30. What, what are we going to do? You know, like Christmas morning. And she says, well, I've got these two kids. That, uh, that come from a pretty tough family situation. And they start school on Wednesday, and they have no school supplies. You know what it's like to walk into a school and be one of the only kids that doesn't have a backpack or a bag, pencils, you know, uh, erasers, crayons, all the stuff we ended up buying? <laughs> so our first night of empty nesting was spent with two little kids going to the store 
to buy all that stuff so they could hold their head up when they walked through the door of their elementary school and their middle school. Cindy didn't do that because she's a good person by nature. She did that because the transformational power of the gospel says to her, that's not going to happen to a kid while I have a chance to say something about it and Tom's got some money in his checking account. I, I, I hoped you'd catch that part. So, so we got all done. I said, sweetie, that, that's really wonderful. I'm happy to, I'm happy to, to absolutely, but I really don't think you're grasping the concept of empty nest and I want us to work on that just a little bit harder as the weeks go on. That's the cause and effect. Do you see your life being captured by the grace of God? Paul's going to explain to us throughout this book how far Jesus had to go to purchase your salvation and my salvation. And that leads us to joyfully following him. And then one last observation is this. I think in this introduction, Paul shows us the God that we may not know. This may be new information to you. It may be old information to you, but it is important information for all of us. Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I could have preached a whole sermon on that one verse, and I won't uh, drag this out too far, but look at what Paul says about God. I Googled in, on my computer the other day in a search engine. I Googled in this question. went to Google, put in this question in my search engine. What do you know about God? Question mark. And I hit, I hit the button. 179 million responses, pages I could go to, to find out what, what you know about God, okay? People are all over the map and what they think they know about God. Now, being a preacher, I talk to people about God from time to time, and I tend to have answers that come in one of two patterns. This is a generalization, but it's true 78% of the time. The first reaction is that God's an angry old guy who's watching me you know, 24-7 every day, and he's waiting for me to mess up so he can pounce on me and make my life miserable. Now, it, it's said in politer terms, but that's the, that's the idea, that God is really kind of out to get me. The second response I get is that God... And again, these are my words. He, you know, he's kind of like that really kindly grandpa that sits in the rocking chair on the porch. And if he opens his eyes and he sees you doing something kind of cute, he'll hand you a dollar bill. But, you know, an hour from now, he might not remember your name. You know, he, he's kind of disengaged. He's kind of forgetful. But he's, he's a benevolent kind of guy. Those tend to be the answers I get when I talk to people about God. But Paul introduces us to the fact that both of those pictures are radically contradictory to the true God of Scripture. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God. In the original Greek, the word there is beloved. And I like that word better because it's a great word. It's one of my favorite words, beloved. It just gets to the heart of the matter. Husbands, every day, you should, and I don't do this as much as I should, but every day you should look at your wife and say, you are my beloved. And let her know that. There's something about that word that carries a deep amount of power and intimacy. And Paul says, God isn't putting up with you. God isn't tolerating you. God isn't even just kind of liking you a little bit. You know, those family members that they, they pull in for a holiday and you wave and you're glad to see them. But the better time is when they drive back down the driveway and you wave and they leave. That's not God's attitude towards you. He's crazy about you. He's passionate about you. You are the beloved of God. And in Christ Jesus, we receive grace that brings peace. There's no anger. There's no hostility or disinterest. But it is a pure, unadulterated love of a father. Now, it, I kind of like the 
peace and quiet in the house. But when we said goodbye to Katie on Thursday morning, I can't even talk to you about it now. I mean, we went to the airport and hugged her. We just kind of looked at each other. You know what? I was like, I can't talk right now. She's like, I can't either. I mean, my heart was, you know, broken. Now, I'm very happy for her. She's in a great place. It's wonderful. But she's, you know, well, how many miles was that? 3,000 something? It's, it's more than that. And I'm not going to see her very much. She's my beloved. Now, we went down to Alabama and dropped Jordan off at the University of Alabama. And right out there in front of his dorm with all kinds of people walking around, I grabbed this kid and I hug him and I kiss him. Why? Because he's my beloved. I don't have to tell you that. You understand that. If you're parents, you get that. Now, take that emotion in my heart, which I get choked up about a week later, and multiply that times about 700 billion, and you might begin to grasp the outer edges of the depth of God's love for you. He doesn't tolerate you. He sent a son to die for you so that he could call you his child, so that he could adopt you into his family. This is not about Paul. This is about God's grace and God's mercy. That's why we're going to row across the ocean of Romans. Not to know more, to be intellectually superior. Not even so that maybe we'll behave a little better in our families and our communities. But rather so that we will know more of him. His righteousness, his grace, his mercy, and his justice that redeems us. And I can guarantee you it will be well, well worth the trip. Let's pray.